sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Rabbi Eris Sherman of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. This week, we are joined by a true legend in the investigative journalism world, author of so many books, author of Running in Place Inside the Senate, author of Live from New York, Uncensored History of Saturday Night Live, author of Powerhouse, The Untold Story of Hollywood CAA, podcast host of Origins. But today we're here to talk about sports and faith as we do on Rabbi on the Sidelines, this book right here. Those guys have all the fun. Inside the world of ESPN, we are joined by James Andrew Miller. Jim, it's so great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Rabbi. Yeah, we could uh, basically spend the whole hour just uh, listing all of the books and credentials that you have. But um, Well, this, that would be a waste of time. <laughs> this book actually is longer than uh, most tractings of the Talmud, and it's about <laughs> ESPN. So you have written about so many vast topics and subjects. And yesterday you said, do you want me to go broad or deep? And actually in the Talmud, we say it's Iyun, that we're going to go a little bit of both. So first of all, how do you choose the topics that you're literally going to delve into for 800 pages? Well, I, uh, I date them and then I narrow it down and then I marry them because I think, you know, these books usually take me about three, three and a half years. Wow. And you have to love the subject that you're working on for three and a half years. Mm -hmm. And I think I also, for myself, I want there to be some sort of personal connection that I had. I mean, I started watching ESPN early on and I, you know, always watched Saturday Night Live once I, once my parents let me stay up long enough to watch it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I worked and, uh, and at one point was represented by CA and with HBO, I mean, I, Gary Shandling and Larry Sanders and all those shows obviously were really important to me. And so I think I just start from a foundation that I have some kind of connective tissue to it. And I am willing to then do the proverbial deep dive. So you do the deep dive. What about gaining the access? It seems like there's a bit of trust involved with the other side. I just uh, saw one of your uh, interviews that basically said, you know, ESPN, they weren't going to let you in, but then they actually said, look, this book is going to be written whether you come in the door or not. So how do you gain that faith and trust? I think it's a beautiful high holiday message about how we gain faith and trust in each other about telling the story and the, the, the truthful story. I mean, look, it's tricky because I do sign the contract before I tell the place that I'm doing it. So in the case of ESPN, I went in and met with then President George Bodenheimer and I said, I've just signed this contract to write a history of ESPN. He looked at me like, well, that's nice for you, but we're not going to participate. And for a year and a half, I wasn't allowed to speak to anybody who worked there. Um, and uh, as one of my friends in the communications department told me, they even had a picture of me at the security gate. So um, <laughs> I went and I did as many interviews and I did as much reporting as I could without involving anyone inside. And then I went back to George and to his credit, and I'm eternally grateful. He realized that the book was gonna be done without their participation, and it was better for them to be included. The same kind of thing happened with CA to a, to a certain degree. And um, you know, I think that, look, when you have other 
books or other work that people can look to so they understand the DNA of what you're bringing to the project or what your style is, what your reputation is. I mean, I'm proud of the fact that I've never had to issue a correction. I don't really burn bridges. I was delighted when Lauren Michaels wanted um, to do the 40th anniversary, you know, a second volume, so to speak, of the SNL history. Um, so I feel like by not burning bridges, um, I think that's another thing that people can look back on. They can call people at other organizations and say, what was it like? That's not to say that they're going to like everything that's written. I try and be objective because that's probably job number one. I'm trying to write a history of record and to really make sure that at least my value proposition for the reader is to say, you know, these were the key inflection points and to capture 360 degrees of those inflection points. But I still think there's a moral compass that should be attached to um, works even of nonfiction. And so are there things that people tell me that as soon as I hear them, I think, oh boy, this, you know, it's a, there's a duality to it because they say something I thought, you know, I think right away, well, this is going to sell books. And then upon reflection later on, you think, you know what though, in retrospect, that person is not going to really be glad that they shared that. Or mm -hmm. what I'll even do sometimes, and again, this is, you know, if I if I was reporting for the New York Times, I probably wouldn't do it. But since it's a book and it's my book, I get to do this. I call them and I say, look, you know, you said this and this. You said it on the record. I'm grateful. I just want to make sure that you're okay with that now. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they may say, yeah, I'm fine. Or, oh my gosh, thank you so much for calling. Or what I really try and do is I try and work with them to preserve the things that they are comfortable with. And sometimes it's only a couple of words, but then get those things jettisoned from what goes in the book. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, $9,000 on a credit card from a father and son, Rasmussen. These two people who basically, they didn't, you know, they didn't have even the setup that I'm talking about here in a synagogue in a podcast studio. That was only a dream a couple oh, of years ago. You're talking about the beginning of ESPN. Million at ESPN, nine thousand dollars on a credit card with a father and son. Um, who would have imagined that this little town in Bristol, Connecticut, would be the monster that it is within the TV sports world as well? Did you know that story as you started? Uh, I knew I knew enough about it that I thought it was, you know, one of the most compelling origin stories I had ever heard, and I feel like there is an unbelievable unbelievable a parade of things that you just can't imagine like if that something had happened the other way they may not have been there you know even even i'll just give you a quick example the notion that espn is headquartered in bristol connecticut well it turns out first of all that bristol connecticut wasn't even bill rasmussen's first choice and then they couldn't get satellite permits there so they moved to bristol and his the money had to be sent to the bank in order for him to get the deposit on the land. And there was a snowstorm, which mm -hmm. gave him two extra days to get the money into the bank. I mean, like there's all these things that happen, by the way, for the first 20 years that if we're looking at, you know, that quintessential fork in the road, 
right? If something didn't happen that way and it went the other way, we may not be talking about ESPN at all today, let alone the ESPN that we know. Mm-hmm. So actually, let's fast forward for a second. Where does ESPN fit in terms of the $7 billion TV deal that the Big Ten just signed with the, all of these networks as well? And do you see ESPN transforming in terms of today to keep adapting? I know you mentioned in the Origins podcast the whole idea of social media, that it was sort of hard for ESPN to keep up with social media because you could find out on your phone um, what was going on in the Dodgers-Padres game before they actually reported on SportsCenter. How do networks like ESPN keep up um, making sure that they are still relevant to the times? Well, I mean, look, I think ESPN throughout its uh, history, it went on the air September 7th, 1979. So that's a long history. I think throughout its history, it has had to do major pivots. Sometimes they were proactive and they were ahead of the game. Sometimes they were reactive and they were too late mm-hmm. um, and it cost them. I think that, you know, look, if you if you just to go back to what you mentioned before, ESPN didn't get part of the Big Ten deal. They mm-hmm. wanted to. I think that was one of those moments where ESPN realizes that there still is competition in the field, that they don't dominate uh, totally, and that there are limits to what Disney, their parent company, is willing to spend on rights. Uh, and so they are maybe behind the eight ball in that deal. But then you look back and, you know, they just got the NHL. They got, I mean, they, they've they spent a fortune, billions and billions of dollars. They just got a new NFL contract, which is arguably the best of their entire history. So the short answer is ESPN is still wildly relevant in the sports universe. ESPN for many years, you know, it's funny because when I read Bob Iger's memoir, which I thought was beautifully done, but ESPN wasn't mentioned as much as I thought. And you think about things like Pixar and Marvel and whatever, ESPN was throwing off 11 to $12 billion in revenue a year. And one could easily argue that Disney was able to buy some of those things like Pixar or Marvel because of ESPN's contributions. And so I think ESPN has become a major artery for Disney. They're trying to decide now whether they spin it off. Um, but it's a very, it's still a gigantic, gigantic presence in both sports and in the Disney universe. So you mentioned 1979, that first uh, episode. So we're going to uh, take a look of here of what that looked like. And we're going to talk about that. Nothing changed sports coverage more than ESPN. The first broadcast in 1979 said it all. Hi, I'm Lee Leonard welcoming you to Bristol, (laughs) Connecticut. Sports, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There were financial growing pains, but ESPN hung tough. ESPN has finally turned the corner. They say that we're making a profit. It went out the window with these tuxedos tonight. We will have the Pittsburgh (laughs) Penguins score shortly. 24 hours a day sports. First of all, look at all the money they spent on that beautiful set that Lee Leonard was on. (laughs) That was some that was some major expenditures. But uh, so here's an interesting thing about 24-7. When Bill Rasmussen went to Tech Schramm, who was a big presence and later bigger presence with the Cowboys, um, you know, he talked about his idea. And Tech said something which I think is worth thinking about. He said, look, I think this is a lousy idea. People aren't going to watch sports 24-7. Well, that wasn't what ESPN was about. ESPN was about making sports available 24-7. 
So you could watch, you know, Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere and Seinfeld and whatever you wanted to watch. And then afterwards, if you turned on ESPN, you knew that you were going to be getting your sports fix. And I think there's a fundamental difference between that. The second thing is a quick little story. Again, it's one of these hiccups that, you know, if I put in a script, you would say to me, Jim, come on, you're going a little too much. The When Bill went to get space on RCA SATCOM 1, a transponder, the only transponder that was left was the one for 24-7. Ted Turner was already on that. HBO was already on it. They didn't want to spend the money. And it turns out if you amortize the cost, it was actually cheaper. And so they got into the 24-7 business because that was the only transponder left on the satellite. I mean, it's just, you know, you can't make this stuff up. So we call that not a coincidence, but hashkachat pratit, a bit of a divine uh, influence in terms of how our, our paths cross as well. well almost and, shared. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And, you know, when I want to talk about the, the, the fact that somebody has faith in an idea, right? The Rasmussen's had faith in an idea. And every time that ESPN pivoted, it seemed like in your book that there was a lot of faith in the idea. Um, And one of the ideas is that the channel is not as big as the broadcaster or the broadcaster is not as big as the channel. This is what you said on the Dan Patrick show. We're going to listen to this and tell you uh, maybe expand about what is the value of the actual broadcaster announcer bringing the sports to the public. Um, You had to find it instead of now where ESPN finds you. Well, the other thing was that ESPN always wanted those four initials to be bigger than any personality. So in a way, and that's part of what you and Keith struggled with in the mid-90s with management because they didn't want you getting bigger than the network. Well, they said that we don't want another Berman. Right, because Chris got in under the wire. So what's the idea of ego of the person who's sitting at the desk as opposed to the content that's going out onto the airs? Right, so you always want there to be this kind of effective marriage, right? I mean, when Walter Cronkite was at his prime and... He was, you know, they used to say that he could sway national opinion. I mean, LBJ started to really worry about the Vietnam War when it was clear Cronkite had turned against it. You have a powerful personality anchoring a news show. And so you want the pedigree of that news to be as great as it can be. But you also know that you have the right person in the chair to transmit it. Mm-hmm. There have been, there's, it's a kind of a, it looks like an EKG, actually, in terms of ESPN's approach to personalities. Steve Bornstein, who was president in the 90s, once said, I wish I could do Sports Center with robots because he was sick and tired of anchors complaining. And anchors, of course, need to be paid and anchors need to be massaged and anchors need to be negotiated with and whatever. And so there is that period that follows where they started to make the studio and the context and the highlights, you know, the dominating force. And then they realized, wait a second, in such a, you know, a universe that has so many options for us to get information, we do need that personality. We do need to come in and tune to somebody that we know and we like. But if I could go back for a second, um, you know, you were talking about the idea of sticking with an idea and mm-hmm. Believe me, you're the Talmudic scholar, so I feel even squeamish bringing this up. But I do think I'll there's on that after the sermon next week that you'll be with us. <laughs> there's 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 a kind of a interesting example um, from the Mishnah, which is that 
when the Red Sea appeared, it didn't part immediately. It, right. it had to, it only parted when someone put their foot in the water. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was a beautiful, beautiful message because you have to have faith. And I think that, you know, not to overblow this, but I think Bill Rasmussen was told by many, many people that this thing was not going to work. Mm -hmm. He'd been fired from a job. He didn't have a lot of money. He had no auspices whatsoever. And yet he was determined to forge ahead, even when he was met with some initial failures. So just to carry the, you know, carry it forward, he did put his foot in the water mm -hmm. and, 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 and the seas did part. Now it wasn't easy. He was always climbing Everest on a cold day in his shorts. I mean, it was going to be a very, very difficult journey. Um, but I think we have to remember when we talk about the origins of ESPN, the strength of his determination and his conviction to get this thing done. And so when you talk about that strength and conviction, something that's, I think, fascinating about ESPN, you said it's about the availability of the sports 24 hours a day. Something that's happened over the years is that it's morphed into not necessarily a news channel, but when things in the world or country happen, specifically during sporting events, they are announcing to the to the nation what's going on. One great example that I always think of is um, when Osama bin Laden was killed and Dan Shulman, who was one of my first guests on this podcast, uh, announced, as he told me, one year was, say, tell about the play to second base to throwing to the first. And the other is tell the American people that Osama bin Laden was captured. Or you mentioned a lot of pages in this book about the OJ OJ case and um, how you have to basically cut in from the you know NBA finals. What role does ESPN play in actually telling the American story as well beyond just the trade deadlines and box scores? Yeah, it's an interesting look. I think the most provocative example of that is what happened in 9-11 after 9-11 because ESPN has the Monday night football game in Denver and Tuesday morning is obviously one of the most difficult days in our nation's history. And so there is instantly the question, is there space for sports? Are games going to even continue? This was before the leagues had decided to do what they did. And so ESPN had to quickly pivot and you can't ignore the story and you can't pretend that sports are more important or, you know, it's just, it's almost beside the point. And I think that what they did by pivoting over to ABC News for that period that they did was important and the way they brought it back and how they brought it back. And I think they did a beautiful job. I mean, look, I can be critical of ESPN sometimes, but, you know, I think that the times that they rise to the occasion are are, are really noteworthy. And I think that if you go back and you look at the choreography that was done in terms of how sports became part of the national fabric again, after such a terrible tragedy, they did a, they did a beautiful job and they did a great job of covering those solemn moments. You know, obviously everyone remembers Yankee stadium and, you know, the first game after 9-11. And there you are in New York, just miles from the tragedy, you know, one of the sites of the tragedy. And I think they they really showed that they have different muscles to flex. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's the real key success factor, that you're that you're not just able to operate on 
a single pathway, which is you know great covering the game and providing the highlights afterwards. You know, they they proved themselves in numerous times. Look, during the Pete Rose trial, they became experts in legal maneuvers and and you know and OJ crime like they they it turns out that a sports a 24-7 sports network has to do more than just sports and reporting on it. Yeah, and actually it's interesting. I think 30 for 30 is one of the best examples of that. I know for a fact that many of those stories that pull at our heartstrings become rabbinic sermons. Okay, back with James Andrew Miller. <laughs> We're going to go back to the SB Awards. I want to talk about that for a second. Um, the SB Awards... It seemed like people were on two different sides of the coin in terms of if they were worth it. But one of the things that I think was worth it was the Jim Valvano speech that really has lived um, for generations. And it didn't just tell a beautiful story, but rather it um, raised a lot of awareness, not just for cancer research, but for what sports can do outside of the realm of the actual game. Maybe you can tell us about that moment. I know he almost didn't make it to that moment. Dick Vitale and Coach K literally had to bring him up to the stage. What did that moment mean for ESPN? I think, look, if you're trying to launch a new franchise like they were with the ESPYs and you're giving an award to Jim Valvano, who is, you know, tragically about to die, and you get him on stage and he gives that kind of speech. I mean, it was a speech for the ages. He was incredibly remarkable and in a way it set the stage for the future of the ESPYs. I mean it created a very very high bar but I think ESPN's ability to showcase that kind of humanity um, and do that kind of storytelling uh, I think was very very important. It showed another level Uh, not that there hadn't been emotional parts and emotional stories at ESPN before that of course there had but at that on that scale, uh, I think it helped cement the foundation of what the SBs could be and would be for for decades. I think the parallel is interesting of this year specifically when Dick Vitale went through his own cancer struggle and uh, during that game over the I think it was uh, with Gonzaga when he came back on the air, watched a Jimmy V speech, and he, I believe he was uh, live stream. Maybe talk about that relation between Dick Vitale and Jim Valvano. Dick Vitale not really being the one to go on ESPN. Loses, again, one of those Bashert moments. Loses his job. His wife basically tells him, get on TV. Um, tell us a Dick Vitale story that we don't know. Well, I mean, look, I think sometimes here, my biggest takeaway is that if you look at people like Dick Vitale and Andrew Kramer and Charlie Steiner, I mean, people in that era who had not, been Charlie had been a broadcaster and Andrea had been a great producer at NFL. I mean, obviously they understand the world, but they weren't people who appeared on camera all the time. And I think that one of the things that ESPN did, in particular, a guy named John Walsh, who mm-hmm. was a very important executive, um, they gave people the chance. And I think that that's, you know, another legacy to that era. Um, you know, you, there's a tendency sometimes on the part of management that they're not going to take a chance on somebody that they're going to say to them, you know, go to Des Moines, put four years in on local coverage and show us your tapes afterwards. But I think that it is remarkable when you look at Dick and 
and some of the others I mentioned, and, and, and the list goes on and on and on. But um, people can develop and people have potential and could can you be the kind of organization where you're willing to take a gamble on somebody mm-hmm. and watch them and have them grow before the audience's eyes? Uh, yes. Is it safer to have them shipped off to some other place and to perfect the art and to study? And yes, of course. But that's not that's not really that, that's not as much fun. And I think that, you know, obviously Dick Vitale has learned a lot since he's been at ESPN. And I just love the fact that management believed in him. And and, you know, he grew to be the person that we know today. Two questions about that. Um, the first is you see that in other realms as well, actors in SNL or people in the Senate, that a community, a society needs to give people a chance to maybe even sometimes make a mistake in terms of the Yom Kippur uh, idea coming up to say, you know what, you might make a mistake, but that mistake is actually going to allow you to grow even further in your life. Right. But it's a question of, you know, you may be willing to take the chance, but I think we have to celebrate and salute those organizations that actually then give people the chance. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are many more of us who are, look, I can do this. Just, you know, put me in front of the camera and the light goes on and I think I can handle it. Then there are places that are going to let that happen. And I think that one of the great things that ESPN did, first of all, in its early years, in the 1980s, uh, no offense against the people that were chosen, but they couldn't compete with the people who had a lot of experience because they were going to the networks. Uh-huh. Um, that was one of the big deals about Lee Leonard. And it's one of the reasons why he's the first face you see in the history of ESPN, because he was somebody who had been at the networks. They, they made a big deal. They spent a lot of money on him. They got him. And so he was very much an outlier. You know, Chris Berman was straight from Brown. Um, you know, I mean, you got, you got a lot of people who are getting there. Bob Lee from Seton Hall. You got a lot of people in the uh, infancy of ESPN who had never been anyplace else. And even if they worked in their college, you know, uh, campus doing it or maybe an internship or whatever, um, this was their first time doing it full time. And I think that's that's pretty amazing. So you write a lot about Chris Berman. You talk a lot about Chris Berman. Chris Berman's in the book. Um, Dan Patrick asked who's the best on-air personality of all time. You mentioned Chris Berman. What makes Chris Berman Chris Berman besides hearing on the podcast that he, I believe, doesn't even have email? What makes him him? Well, I think, look, particularly in the 80s and the 90s, uh, I think there are two things. First of all, he had an incredible quest for knowledge mm-hmm. about the sports. He wasn't somebody who was just going to do some knee-jerk opinions or didn't do his homework before covering a game. He was a student of the games and he was a fan of the games. Mm -hmm. Second of all, because of his personality, he had true infectious enthusiasm. And so he turned up the volume, so to speak, um, in terms of on-air personalities at ESPN. And that's not to say, by the way, that everybody liked it. Right. You go into Baskin Robbins, they got 31 flavors and there's always going to be someone to say, I, you know, I I would rather have root canal than eat pumpkin spice ice cream. But the truth is that by and large, people did like Berman. He was 
unbelievable with highlights. He loved football, did baseball, did everything. And I think that because he got to be so well-known, that was a big thing for ESPN to have at least a personality that was part of the sports zeitgeist at the time. It's interesting because one of the stories uh, that you tell that he tells um, is about Cal Ripken's game when he breaks the record. And two things that I really found fascinating about that. Number one, he reads Lou Gehrig's book, as you said, the history of that moment. He said he couldn't sleep the night before. But then also the silence of a broadcaster. So we've been talking about the power of a broadcaster, but often it's the silence of the broadcaster in the right moments. Can you address, as we like to say, the power of the pause um, for the broadcaster and the audience? Well, look, I mean, we, we just lost Ben Scully. Yes. Ben Scully was, he once turned his back on the field so he wouldn't be tempted to even say what he was seeing mm -hmm. because he wanted to ensure that there was silence. I mean, think about that. Uh, Bob Costas, uh, Joe, I mean, you could go on and on with the people who understand the value, like Chris did that night after Khaled broke the record, of just particularly given the fact that it's television and people can see, not just hear, um, and let people process things for themselves. That is, uh, it's a powerful decision to make, and it's a powerful calculation to forge in terms of when you get back in. So that's the power of the pause, and now I want to talk the power of the word. One of those people that didn't work out at ESPN was actually Rush Limbaugh in terms of the Donovan McNabb incident. How much leeway is there for people to put in their own self in terms of the narrative, not just of sport, but what's happening in the world today? Over the pandemic, we talked about racial equality and the George Floyd incidents. And in the bubble, there's, you know, uh, racial equality written on uniforms and words. And then you have somebody like Ennis Cantor who, you know, puts about a, a, a message on his shoes. Where is the place for societal issues in sports for athletes for broadcasters so now you've come upon a pretty big matzo ball because the whole relationship between sports and politics is something that espn has had to deal with um certainly in its last two decades uh and absolutely within the last dozen years or so and they have made a bunch of course corrections along the way. They have made mistakes that to their own admission. They have uh, they have recalibrated their approach. I mean, just to give you a quick cursory overview, at one point, you know, they were very very easy about that intrusion. In fact, if you were to look back on the six o'clock Sports Center with Jamel and Michael. Jamel Hill and Michael Phillips, uh, they, uh, they had an Obama bobblehead on the set. Mm. Now, I mean, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Uh, you couldn't do that a year later. Well, actually when they shut down the, that, when they, when Michael and Jamel went to other pastures and then they decided that any kind of ESPN personality, even when they're off the air on their own Twitter feed, shouldn't be getting into politics or espousing any particular orthodoxies. Mm -hmm. And that was quite repressive for some of the people at ESPN and they struggled with it. 
and then there were suspensions for violations. Uh, with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, the toothpaste came out of the tube and it was almost impossible to shove it back in. And so once again, ESPN had to adapt accordingly. And they basically, you know, it's like they're putting sandbags in front of the flowing water and they're trying to stop it. And then at some point it just became, um, you know, impossible. And they just gave up and they just said, all right, let the water through. And, you know, that, that carries with it uh, a lot of baggage. And at one point, the baggage was so severe that you had people on the right saying that ESPN had become like the MSNBC of sports. Hmm. And I think that that was somewhat unfair because there are, look, I know them. There are a lot of conservatives at ESPN. They just don't necessarily want to discuss it or they don't feel compelled to share their own private takes on ideology or politics. So I think you have to be really careful when you make such a large statement about an organization that, you know, back then probably had close to 7,000 employees. So it's interesting that you uh, were on a show speaking about your podcast origins and you speak about the power of good news. This is what you said about finding good news in the world. And um, it turns out that there's, there's actually some good stuff happening out there. And uh, sometimes I feel like we're just sitting there and there's like tsunami of bad news washing all over us. So Mm -hmm. it's our little way of trying to, you know, raise a flag of victory. Yeah. How do you raise that flag of victory that imagine if your next book is creating the 24 hour news source, news source of good news. What would we have on that show? I'm still recovering from that clip because I realize how much hair I've lost. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think, look, I try both as a father and as a journalist to make sure good news doesn't travel slow. That doesn't mean that you ignore bad news or you ignore challenges. But I think that there's a tendency to sometimes focus on what isn't working rather than what is working or something, God forbid, has gotten better. You know, I'm so tired of people my age saying, well, it was, you know, 20 years ago was better, 30 years ago better. Yes, absolutely. But I also feel like anybody since the creation of man could say that because there's always going to be examples where something is was great and that didn't continue or whatever. But there's a lot of things that get better and better. And so, like, this is my own corny, corny, I know, little way of my port of entry into this world, which is to just maybe report and celebrate and point out some of the good things that happen along the way. So one last question about content, because I'm fascinated by cornhole and the spelling bee. What is the value of bringing the national spelling bee, which I learned a lot, by the way, from watching ESPN over the years during spelling bee, um, to the audience of the NFL or vice versa? Well, I mean, just start with the single premise that just because somebody is a football fan doesn't mean that they're not interested in other things. And second of all, the spelling bee is a great competition. Mm -hmm. It doesn't involve a ball it doesn't involve uh you know tackling someone or shooting a puck or whatever but it's a great competition and i think that i I loved it when espn carried it uh, because they did they did treat it as a sporting event ironically some people at the organization at scripts didn't think it should be covered as a sporting event and 
you know, ESPN's coverage kind of made them car sick, but I think they were wrong. Um, I think that it's great to bring all sorts of competition to, to bear if you're a sports network. And the other thing about sports is at the end of the day, look, yes, we have a very fractionalized divisive world that we live in, but there's something about sports, not, not off the field, but sports is a meritocracy. I mean, we spend a lot of time in the news business talking about facts or bizarrely alternative facts or things that did this happen, but it really didn't happen or whatever. Um, when you're on the field, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, I was at the U.S. Open last week or whatever. Um, you know, Carlos won the U.S. Open. He won those points. You see what he earns. It is a true meritocracy. And I think that that's something, there's something like unbelievably, I don't know, rewarding about just getting locked into an environment where somebody can't say, oh, no, 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 he really didn't catch that pass. I mean, maybe there's an instant replay about whether he was in bounds or not. But my only point is sports, the spelling bee, all kinds of competition like that are a great escape from a world where then everything else is up for grabs. And even if, you know, something happened, somebody else can say, well, that really didn't happen or that was fake or whatever. And so I think sports, sports value to our lives is, I think, even more precious now than it's ever been. And so last question, what aspects of faith have you seen in the world of sports, not necessarily in the business side of building a sports empire, but actually on the court, in the locker rooms, in the stands? Are there moments of faith unity that you have seen in the sports world that we can go into this holiday season together? Well, um, putting aside the fact uh, that I think there's all different examples and expressions uh, and definitions of faith in people's lives, I think that one of the things that I, I've seen more and more of talking to athletes is that um, you have a tendency to think that people use faith to kind of get to the top. And then maybe when they have so much success, they don't necessarily need it or use it as more because they, they've come to where they want, a place where they want. And I see just the opposite. I'm seeing lots of, I mean, this is, I think there was always been athletes who have great religious practices or adherence to it. And, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll um, acknowledge Yom Kippur and just think of the great Sandy Kovacs and the statement he made, which was, you know, such an amazing thing. But I feel like more and more athletes, even after they've reached the pinnacle of their sport, they're still holding on to their faith. And as we saw over the Olympics and other places, mental health is a big thing now for athletes. I mean, if you look at any tennis player and their quote unquote team, they have a physio person, they have their actual coach, they have their financial team or whatever. And, but by and large, most of the top players now have a, psychologist or a therapist or a mental health coach and that and part of their work is also working with the athlete's faith and how they bring faith to bear on their um on their career so i think that you know it's 
I think it's amazing that we're able to be in a world now where so much is transparent. Mm -hmm. So many of the things that we didn't used to see in the world of sports, we're getting to see, including psychological struggles, including challenges with faith, or including using faith as a, you know, as a launching pad or as the oxygen for their performance. Well, I love that. The oxygen of the performance is actually faith. And here at Sinai Temple, we are very proud over this past year to start a Sinai Temple Mental Health Center, as well as this Center of Sports and Faith. We are so honored that we were joined by, by James Andrew Miller, author of so many books. But today, those guys have all the fun inside the world of ESPN. Jim, it was so great to have you. And we're looking forward to connecting with you on a uh, in, in future endeavors. And last question, what's the next project that you have? Uh, I'm working on several documentaries. I don't know yet about the book. I'm still dating some potential subjects. Got it. Shana Tova to Jim Miller. Thanks for being on Rabbi on the Thigh Lines. Have a great Thank day. Thank you for having me and thanks for your thoughtful questions. Thank you. 